Hello, good afternoon, good morning and good evening from wherever you're watching or listening from. My name is Jamie Robinson and welcome to Three Blokes and the Rugby League podcast. I'm once again joined by the ever-faithful duo of Josh McVitie and Jed Amos Goddard. Now, since we started this podcast around seven months ago, we didn't really dream of having conducting any sort of interviews, but today not only do we have the pleasure of welcoming a Super League head coach, but the main man at the Leeds Rhinos and the reigning Challenge Cup winners, Mr. Richard Agar. Welcome to the podcast, mate. How are you doing? Thanks, boys. Yeah, I'm really good, thanks. Yeah, really good. Good stuff, mate. I mean, we were just chatting briefly off camera, mate, but you mentioned, obviously, all, all the plans with the pre-season have kind of gone up in the air at the minute. So how are you dealing with all that? <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's navigating our way through it is... Uh... Yeah, it's difficult. You know, it's been, I think, well publicised that we had uh, we had a 10-day COVID shutdown. And obviously, with that came about 11 COVID cases. We only had one last year. Um, and while we had some track and trace, I think, you know, that was pretty much standard for everyone. So, I think when the, pre- uh, when the season got put back, I think most coaches would have been quite happy that you get a couple of extra weeks preparation. But obviously, we I think we hit about 11 or 12 COVID cases in... Uh, in about two weeks from coming back after being pretty clear, you know, we'd up to our protocols, being ultra careful. Um, but I think the new strain and variant, which obviously I think is more transmittable, you know, we got a case in and then before we know it, we'd, we'd sort of 12 in, in about two weeks. So yeah, they shut us down for, uh, for 10 days, but in and amongst that, we got some track and traces too. And, and we still got a few guys back coming from injury. So yeah, it's been, uh, yeah, it's been somewhat disjointed. We still feel we've got plenty of time to, you know, get on track. Um, but as best laid plans have been, you know, pretty much up in the air and, um, and and knocked around a little bit. But I don't think that's going to be different from from many teams. I know Saints had a little bit. Huddersfield had the same as us. Uh, got shut down. I think Lee have had a little bit too. So I, I don't think it's going to be uncommon uh, a little bit like it went last year, really, that, you know, we're going to have some... Uh, you know, some some little bits of uh, COVID interruption to navigate at some point. How was the pre-season actually been going for you, obviously, with it being so interrupted? Have you managed to get much time with it with the guys and, and managing to get a lot of messages over? Uh, up until last week, we'd not completed a full week through, again, through, through the odd COVID shutdown, through uh, inclement weather. You know, we got snowed off a couple of times as well. Uh, so of, of our first, I think it was of our first four week, we we didn't get a full week in. Um, we we were sort of fairly lucky that we had quite a quite a large percentage percentage of the squad training before Christmas too. Um, so there weren't too bad. You there, Richie? when from someone for two weeks and they're on a 10-week return to play to lose two weeks like that where you can't get them uh, you know you can't get them in the gym and uh, the physios can't get their hands on them yeah you lose some vital and, and valuable time but as I say we we're pretty confident we're not in we're not in too bad Nick and I think one of the uh, one of the things we can take comfort in is uh, we've not got too many changes to our squad we've got a couple of middle guys front rowers coming in so that's a you know, one of them's an international, so we, we feel that slotting those guys in is a little bit easier than the position we were in last year where uh, we've got a hell of a lot of new players and we've got to, you know, knit together a, a new spine and things like that. So so we feel we're in a, a better spot to 
uh, I guess, to cope with the disruptions that come our way um, at this moment in time, given given everything what's being thrown at us. But yeah, like I said, mate, it's 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 just the way it is for everyone at this moment in time. So we're not getting, uh, you know, we're not getting too stressed about it. There, there's some positives. Is um, we are getting, I guess, more reps into some of our younger players. Uh, so they're, they're getting a little bit more frontline experience during this time. You know, we've got a lot of a lot of confidence in them and, and the way that we feel we can, um, you know, we can move the club forward with some of the, you know, some of the younger end of the squad that we've got going at the moment. So, yeah, we, we're getting some valuable time with them. Yeah, it's obviously something of the past 20 years that Leeds have been really well known for is bringing through the younger lads. Um, with Luke Gale being out for the first portion of the season, mate, is, are you looking at bringing through a younger lad or are you going to fill in elsewhere? Uh, well, it might not be yet. It's, it's, it's a, you know, 12 week injury, um, but it is possible to shave shave a week or two off that. You know, Luke's in good shape too. Uh, he had a visit to his surgeon for I think his, his three or four week uh, post surgery assessment. They're really happy with the way it's going. And, you know, he's set his stall out to try and play in round one. Uh, the, the question mark for us is going to be what, what we can get into him before then. You know, we're certainly not going to take any risk of something as delicate as a torn peg. Um, but, you know, we're not ruling anything out or in at this stage. We've got different options. You know, we can move Richie Myler up. Uh, we don't know if Jack Walker's going to be fit yet. He's one of the guys that, that did get hurt with COVID because he, he got COVID. And then, uh, obviously, that was just before the 10-day shutdown. So, effectively, Jack's had a really difficult three or four-week period uh, where he's fallen behind in his, in, in his rehab. So, you know, it would be a race against time to get him fit for round one. Uh, but we've, we've got different options. You know, Callum McLean's returned to the training field this week. Richie Myler can fill in in that position. Um, so we'll have a look, mate. We've got a long time before we have to, you know, before we have to decide what's going on with that position. Definitely, mate. Let, let's rewind the clock, mate. 20th of January, 1972. Um, it's well documented and no secret that you were born into a rugby league. <laughs> a rugby league family. Yes. And born and bred. Um, if you don't mind, mate, tell us a bit about your upbringing. Well, well, I've got, you know, I guess I've got a lot of stories from me upbringing, really, because, uh, you, know, you know, clearly everybody knows my dad. My dad was a player, so so my formative years, really, uh, I grew up watching OKR uh, in a team, you know, towards the late 70s where they were making floodlit finals, won the championship, uh, went to Wembley, and, and they were a team with, you know, when you look at the team, it's quite a phenomenal team that they had at that point. Uh, but they made, made a lot of finals, so from being... You know, I, I know we're at Dewsbury's Championship game in 1973, but I can't really remember too much about that. But from, from really early doors, I can remember, you know, getting over to Hull and uh, you know, obviously watching OKR play at that moment in time. And uh, I'm very lucky that I spent a lot of my, I guess, early years in rugby league where you form your memories in and around, you know, in and around the changing rooms there. Some of those um, players in that team are still, uh, I guess, lifelong family friends. Um, you know, I still I still socialise with Kay Millward, Roger Millward's daughter a, a little bit. She didn't live too far away from me. Uh, still in touch with Clive Sullivan's daughter a bit, Lisa Sullivan, and uh, and and I know Anthony really well. And so as, as young kids around there, you know, we used to go in the changing rooms, pick the tie-ups off the floor, um, go on the pitch after and kick coke cans over the... There were old dog track around the old Craven Park, so we used to get the sand and kick coke cans, or if we had a ball with us. 
kick Colt hands over the sticks there. And generally in uh, in our days back then, most of the players had pubs. It was a really popular way to go for, for rugby league players as, a, as an occupation. So Phil Law had a pub, Paul Rose had a pub, Steve Hartley had one at one bit, Brian Lockwood had one over in, uh, in Outwood. Um, a couple of the board members had them. So, so generally our Sunday nights consisted of the players um, getting pissed, uh, the wives driving them home, and we were thrown in the kids' room with a packet of crisps and, and a glass of Coke like we do with our own kids now. Um, so, yeah, re- really happy happy memories of uh, at that time at OKR. My uncle were a professional player. My uncle Fred played for Featherstone and, and Batley. Uh, and living in Featherstone, you know, clearly as a, as a travel Saint Junior, one of the things we got every year, we got a season ticket to Featherstone Rovers. But while most of the most of my friends were uh, Featherstone Rovers fans, I, I generally, you know, supported the team uh, that my dad played for uh, until obviously he coached them. Uh, you know, he took over as coach there in the, you know, in in the early eighties. So yeah, I had a, I had a an upbringing in and around rugby league, lived on two streets in Featherstone and, and both streets were uh, full of sort of old professional players. You know, the, the, the second street I lived on blocks like Joe Mullaney, that's a Featherstone legend, David Hobbs um, lived on the same street, Ian Smales lives there now and, and in the next street. So, you know, there's big long street with lots of professional players, amateur players, local cricketers. We lived on the back of Purston Park too. Uh, David Topless lived across the road from us for a, you know, for a period of time. Um, so yeah, it were a, a, you know, I uh, I was surra- I was surrounded by it, and the fact that my dad coached, we used to get the Aussie players when the international transfer ban were lifted, and it became involved. Generally, Featherstone didn't have a lot of money, so the first four or five week of the Aussies coming over, if they'd not get on the house, sort of, they used to. It's your Balmain shirt that's reminded me of this story, Jamie, actually. Uh, some of the players uh, used to live with us. So, so as a young bloke, um, two early blokes that came and, and stayed a bit with us were Alan McMahon, who played for Balmain, played for Australia. And Alan became the inaugural coach at Newcastle Knights. He played about 10, 15 games for Featherstone. You know, he was an international right at the back end of his career, but you know, he, he loved the base, spent a lot of time in Tommy Smales' pub in Featherstone. Uh, and a guy called Rob Petherbridge, who Rod played for Balmain and then about, I think about 1986, he moved to West, uh, Western Suburbs and he, he was right in the running for the Dally M towards the end of the year with Rod. He had a really good season. He left Balmain because he was a fullback and Gary Jack played a lot of fullback, obviously an international fullback. So Rod moved on to Western Suburbs and uh, he left me a shirt. He left me his Balmain shirt with um, Saxon Vines on it. But the reason I brought that up is he taught me how to drive, but I was only 14. So I used to <laughs> clean his car for, I don't know, three quid. And then it'd be right, j- jump in. And we'd drive up and down Katrina Grove while he was teaching me, you know, we're only 14. I mean, heaven forbid if, you know, when I think back now, what a ridiculous, stupid thing to do. But yeah, Rob Petherbridge, one of the Aussies that live with us, 14-year-old, he, uh, he learned me how to drive my mum's mini. And uh, I'm very thankful for him. I passed my test at, at about three weeks after my 17th birthday because I've been driving three years by then. Um, I'm sure there's still plenty of people in Featherstone driving around at 14, year old, 14 years old anyway, to be honest. Um, just touching on something <laughs> that will uh, go on later, um, but obviously I'm sure it's been mentioned to you many times that you're the first father and son duo to win the Challenge Cup as coaches. What was yeah. it like being in that environment, obviously, 
as a, as a young kid, what do you remember about that day? Did it anything imprint on you in any way? Yeah, I, I can remember a bit because we'd been the whole KR derby. Uh, well, my dad's last game for OKR. And, uh, um, you know, he was getting towards the back end of his career. And I think, you know, Wembley was the sort of holy grail for a player back then. It, it was sort of, you know, towards the last game of the season. I think there were 99,900 people in, in there in 1980. And I, I can remember that as a seven or eight-year-old, I think, at the time. Um, and one reason I can remember it too... We, we were very lucky in Featherston at Travellers Saints because I think you see now around, around junior clubs, there's some great coaches. There's a lot of parents that, that coach the kids and, and we went through Travellers Saints at the time. Uh, Vince Farrer and, and my dad were my under-9s coaches and, and obviously the 1980 final, Hull, KR, Vince, Vince were Hull's captain uh, and Vince's son Richard were a real good friend of mine. So, so it, within our team, there were a lot of even though from Featherston, there were a lot of interest in the 1980 uh, Cup final. My auntie were at university in Surrey, we went down and stayed there for the weekend. Uh, it was a pretty dour and boring game. And, um, and you know, we got shipped off while they were having the celebrations, amazing celebrations in Hull. You know, as, as a, I won a Challenge Cup as part of the Hull staff myself. So whichever club, you know, winning, w- winning trophies in Hull is an, an, an unbelievable experience. Uh, if you're not winning trophies, the rest of it can be a bit questionable. Uh, there's not a lot of in between, um, but yeah, the the opportunity and, uh, and and those guys that do win stuff is is revered. So, you know, I, I was very young for that. But the 1983 one, uh, we went round to the changing rooms, uh, the letters in the back door. So so we got to you know we got to go in the changing rooms at Wembley, the conducting the team TV interviews. Uh, the old man picked me and my brother up, and uh, I think they put the pictures on the on the cup final this year on on BBC. They did a little piece on that, and then we got to ride on the open top bus. Um, when it when it got to Featherston, we got to ride on the open top bus with you know tens of thousands of people in and around uh, the village. So yeah, they, you know, very very special time. Some some great photographs from that, and it it were a you know brilliant brilliant time in our lives really because we were rugby mad too. You know, me and my brother were. Um, you know, we'd sleep in sleeping bags on his living room floor. If, if there were test matches on from Australia in the middle of the night, we'd, you know, we'd get calmed down in the front room, get his alarm set for, for the early hours of the morning so we could get up and watch the test matches. Followed, you know, followed my dad everywhere. We lived across from Person Park. So if the amateur rugby on, on a Saturday afternoon and a Sunday morning, we'd watch that. So we, we couldn't really get enough of the game, to be honest. Um, and got to spend... It, you know, very lucky that we got to spend it around, uh, you know, some of my dad's best mates, really, his family friends, Bernard Watson, who played for many years, Nigel Stevenson, Roger Millward. So so we, we spent a lot of time um, in and around players, coaches, um, and some guys that went on to be professionals themselves. Francis Stevenson, who shares a birthday with me, actually. You know, he's obviously his, his dad's Nigel's a good mate, which is a bit of trivia for you there, boys. We actually share the same birthday. So, yeah, well, very, very, very lucky and very grateful uh, to have experienced, you know, to experience being in behind the scenes in, uh, in, in those sort of environments, really. Definitely. And I can only imagine how good it must have been just to, to live through that. I'm, I'm, I'm very jealous, to be honest. Um, just touching on your early days, you did mention, obviously, you played amateur for Travellers. Um, what, what was that like yeah. uh, growing up there? How was that? How did you first decide to go down and play? Uh, well, because my dad, my dad 
they started a, an under nines team. Uh, two two old Featherstone Rovers players and coaches, Keith Bell and Peter Bell, had, had, had started Traveller Saints Juniors up from Tommy Smales' pub. So, as a lot of people know, there's two Tommy Smaleses in Featherstone Tommy Smales scrum half and Tommy Smales who's forward. And uh, both wonderful, wonderful people, great players, great coaches. And from Tommy Smales' pub, uh, I think Tommy were in the Traveller's Rest for, you know, for 30 odd years as a landlord. They started off Traveller Saints Juniors for, for all the local kids in Featherstone. So, I think they were going around under 17s, under 15s. Started an under nines team uh, for all the, you know, for all the local kids. My dad and Vince Farrer coached it. Um, Paul Newell have used to score five or six tries a game for us. Uh, he would, he were that good back then, and uh, you know, played played with my mates that you know we played a lot on the street with. So, you know, back in the good old days, we used to go to the FCG, Featherstone Cricket Ground. Um, get his Australian kits on, get his Great Britain kits, have, have a game of four aside and five aside and play for hours, be it, be it rugby, football, cricket. And, um, and and a lot of my mates played for you know, Traveller Saints back at that time. A number of them went on to be professional. Craig Booth played a fair bit professionally. Paul Newell, obviously, was probably the most most famous player. Craig Palmer's a guy that, that signed on professionally. In fact, probably... Probably nine or ten. I've got an old black and white picture of me under nines team playing in a final at Cass, and probably nine or ten of them eventually signed on professional. Not all made it through to first grade. You know, a number of them were good A team players and, and ended up playing amateur rugby and stuff like that. Um, but it was a very fruitful and, and productive nursery. Um, you know, mainly for Featherstone Rovers back then. You know, the you know, the big guns always got picked off. Uh, a couple of years older than me, uh, John Sharpman signed for Hull. Richard Gunn uh, signed for Leeds. I think Jason Ramshaw signed for Halifax. But but generally, probably 80% of the, the lads, 90% of the lads went on and graduated and, and played through at, played through at Featherstone Rovers, really. It, it was very much the lifeblood of, of that club. Well, obviously, one of them people was yourself, mate, when you signed for Featherstone in, uh, in 91 up until 93. What was that kind yeah. of um, environment going sort of like as an amateur now towards a professional environment? What was it like sort of uh, being accustomed to that? Um, yeah, if I'm honest, it was probably a, a terrible experience for me. Uh, I signed for Featherstone and when you get made captain of the A team at 19, you know you don't have much chance of playing first team. Uh, but my first year was rubbed out. I had glandular fever, which if any of you guys have had it and know it's a very debilitating illness. I'm, I'm off work for six or seven months and I played a couple of games at the start of the year, uh, a couple of games at the end of the year, but, but didn't really play. In that time, Peter Fox uh, was a coach. I don't think Peter had got much rating on me as a player. Then my dad took over, which which made it really hard work. You know, certainly nepotism didn't exist um, in our family, that's for sure. And then, um, and then my mum got seriously ill and uh, you know, unfortunately, she passed away, and, and my dad left the job after that. And then Steve Martin came in, and um, yeah, I, I, not Steve Martin personally, but you know, I had some pretty ordinary treatment, really. I, you know, I probably certainly wasn't good enough to be um, shifting the players that were in front of me at first grade at that time. But I probably had a little bit of form in my second year in the eighteen. But they, uh, they, or players simply wanted to move me on and wanted me out of the club, whether that were anything to do with. You know, in fact, my, my dad was the previous coach, and uh, yeah, I think there were some personal, some personal issues in there. Uh, that yeah, it's been uh, it's a long time ago now, but it, it sort of worked out in my favour because 
Dewsbury at the time offered me a, a chance to go play there and, and I went there and played first grade and probably consider, you know, I really consider Dewsbury my club you know, as, as a player. And while I've got a strong background with Featherstone, um, you know, I really, really enjoyed, you know, my time. Played two spells there, a little spell out of it in between. But uh, yeah, I really enjoyed my time at Dewsbury. Got to play with some great players, some great blokes. Um, and eventually towards the sort of back end of my second spell, played in a, in, in a really... Uh, a really successful team in the championship. That brings us perfectly on to your first spell at Dewsbury Ridge. So at this part, this period in time in 993, were you working part-time and playing part-time or yeah. So I had a I, I had a job. I worked I worked for the old YB, Yorkshire Electricity Board, um, which then became Yorkshire Electricity and subsequently it's, it's Northern Power Grid now. So I so I had a good job, you know, I had an apprenticeship in there. Um and I was working part-time and and playing for Jews at night, but it's all we ever knew back then anyway. You know, the game wasn't full-time. Yeah. Um, you know, when the, when the game did go full-time, that's sort of when Jews, we started to have a, a, a little bit of a stronger team. Uh, Jewsbury, you know, we won the comp in 2000. Uh, you know, the one let us up, and I'm sure we'll get onto this, but subsequent, subsequently uh, signed for Witness, and, and Witness did get up. Um, yeah, I, I had the opportunity to go play Super League with Witness, but uh, I was sort of, I was sort of yeah, 28, 29 year old then. And uh, long and short of it, I didn't think I was good enough. You know, I, th- I thought my body was sort of packing in on me a little bit. I'd had three or four really good years at championship level. And I just wanted to have a go. Um, I just wanted to have a go, really. Say I'd done it, say how I went. Uh, but what I'd done... In between them, Jews themselves. I went to Australia for twelve months, and what I did, I got um, I got unpaid leave to go play bush football in Australia. And, and because I'd had a twelve month off work, I couldn't get another twelve month off. And, and there's no way I was packing my job in. Um, I, I was a fairly well paid player at championship level, and I got a well paid job. So you know, first of all, I would have to take a massive pay cut. And at 29, I felt you know I'd probably climb my mountains as a player. You know, I, I was probably smart enough to know that, um, uh, you know, Super League would have no longevity for me. As much as I really wanted to to have a crack, um, you know, I, I didn't, you know, I knew my own limitations and capabilities, uh, you know, and I wasn't prepared to give up a, a good job and a pension for that. But I sort of had in the back of my mind that, you know, I, I did want to coach. And if it did come as an opportunity that, um, you know, I was going to sort of give away a, you know, a, a strong full-time job. Uh, you know, I felt I could probably have more longevity as a as a coach than I could as a player. Yeah, mate. I think just looking at that Dewsbury team, I mean, it's obviously I was a keen follower of Dewsbury at that time for for a few good reasons. You was. Um, I, I, I'll drop it in later, but I was obviously the successful team mascot around that time, mate. Um, but that's correct. An, an excellent, an excellent team. Just looking back with the likes of you, Barry Eaton, Damien Ball, Nathan Graham, the list goes yeah. on. You a lot of good players there who also did play Super League. What was it around that time period, mate? That that really stuck with that team. You know, grand final appearances, league leaders, Transpennine trophies. Yeah, I think uh, I think Neil built the team really well. You know, he got a good balance. He, he recruited some very good Australian players, Paul Evans and Brendan Williams. Uh, there were some before that. That, that he got in there. I didn't play too much with some of those guys. 
uh, Brett Patterson and uh, Wayne Collins played there, um, David O'Donnell. So, so he managed to pick up through the Super League war because, because the, the Super League war had happened and then the ARL and Super League got back together. Well, because we've been signing up mountains and mountains of players, once the remerger clubs back in the NRL and all the quotas are full uh, in Super League back here, there's still a surplus of players getting paid. So a lot of championship clubs managed to pick up very good players uh, basically for nothing. You know, I know David O'Donnell lived in uh, in Richard Whiteley's old house, so Jewsby rented him this fantastic house, but but weren't really paying him. He was still getting paid off Super League. So, you know, we, we had a couple of good nights out back at, at Dave's house and there's still like an indoor fountain and stuff like that, thinking we were all big time. And... Um, and we managed to pick up some some really good really good overseas players. Uh, Neil managed the squad really well. You know, he was a young, ambitious coach. Um, and I, I'd sort of fallen out of the game a little bit, really. Um, I'd left Dewsbury the first time around when Tony Fisher was the coach, and and I went to Rochdale, and you know, my form my form were really poor. I, you know, weren't, I weren't getting in. Um, I had a good coach actually. It didn't. It didn't last long in the game. A bloke called Shane Tapia, who's young blokes on Wigan scholarship now. And actually, I come across him and I look back now. I think he was a really, really good coach. I think he did Rochdale for a year or two. And then, you know, he come out of the game and never really, uh, never really was seen in coaching again. But Shane was a good coach, and um, you know, quite rightly. He, you know, he weren't picking me. And it just got to a point, I was travelling to Rochdale, it was costing me money, really, to play. Um, you know, I weren't on my doorstep. So, like, you know, I came, I came really, really close at 26, 27 to giving it away. You know, I just thought, you know what, well, I'm, you know, I'm clearly, clearly not good enough. Um, and I sort of lost my mojo a little bit. So, so towards the end of the year, I just sort of packed in. And what had happened, well, I think, yeah, it might have been around the... Can you remember there that shortened season, the centenary season? Yeah, yeah. And mate, night before, night before Fed Lions, they by this time got in national conference. A mate of mine were coaching them. A lot of me, a lot of me good mates, uh, you know, guys who I used to go out for a drink with, they, they all played in in that team. And literally night before the first game of the season, he, he rang me up and said, Do you want to come and play with us tomorrow? Um and to cut a sort of long story short, I went down and played. And, and just really enjoyed the six months that I played with him. And, and it was a time where Featherstone Lions beat, uh, we beat Doncaster uh, in the challenge court, went on and played OKR, top of the championship, give them a really good game. We won the, we won the infamous Yorkshire Cup against it all that's, you know, regularly on YouTube now where there were lots of fighting and, and, and all that. Uh, won the league, got promoted, and, and and it really sort of stimulated some interest back in me. You know, I played really well again. Doncaster played well again, OKR. And and I started having, you know, my phone started to ring from uh, professional clubs. But I spoke to Neil and, and just sort of said, well, let's give it a go. And and I'll basically come on trial. And, and I didn't want to commit and go and end up how I'd been at Rochdale. I thought if I go, um, you know, I, I need to play and... And, and I would just, I always thought I would a player that in a crap team, I look crap. You know, in a, in a, in a rubbish team, I was a worse player. But in a good team, I could help people around me a, a little bit more. Uh, and I felt that was true right throughout my career. I thought when I played in poor teams, I, I was a really poor player. But when I played with a bit of 
uh, talent and, and caliber around me. You know, I could I could sort of steer people around the park, implement game plans, kick the ball, and and you know, I had a pretty good partnership from the word go with with Barry Eaton, really. Uh, but you're right, Jamie. We had some good players around it. Nathan Graham, uh, Damien Ball, Brendan Williams. We'd got some really, really good players at, at championship level. Sean Richardson, Daniel Frame come for a season. They were a very good player. Uh, and uh, yeah, I don't want to miss too many guys out because, you know, it was a, a really tight, uh, team-spirited, uh, successful team. But, you know, we played a good style of rugby. I think we spent two or three years pretty much at the at the top of the table and, and making good finals, yeah. And your dad was a physio, of course. He was. That, that was my close affiliation with that team. And I, I personally, I remember being distraught at the time because I felt like the RFL just weren't letting Dewsbury up. You won, you won back-to-back league leaders and and obviously that famous day at Gig Lane in Bury when uh, you dropped the uh, the drop goal for 13-12 against Lee. What, what, what do you remember about that That's day, right. very briefly, mate? Uh, Dan Potter being at dummy half when I were about to take the drop goal, <laughs> thinking I've got the worst dummy half passer in the club about to give me the ball with 30 seconds on clock. Uh, so I got a little bit closer to him. Uh, what do I, I remember a lot about the day, really. I remember a lot about it. You know, we had a brand new kit for the day and it come with all press studs in. I don't know, they got it on the cheap like they did everything at Jewsbury and it came with press studs in. I can remember having to pick my press studs out of the shirt night before the game. It's really pedantic about stuff like that. Um, I can remember, uh, yeah, I can remember celebrations, mate. Can't remember too much about the game now. I obviously remember... Uh, the ending, I thought we did. Yeah, it was a really good start to the game. Set off like an awesome fire. They come back and look like we're going to get us, but we just managed to hang in there. Mickey Iam had a really good game that day for Lee, if I remember. And, you know, quite ironically, really, because I worked at St. George Illawarra last year and um, I worked with Ian Millward. I was very good mates with Paul Terzis. And uh, the year after, I played for Witness and we, we're not Lee out again. And I can remember, like, literally within 10 seconds of Paul, uh, meeting Paul Terzis for a beer. I met him in the Opera Bar. I'm sure you've been there when you've been to Australia. I met him in the Opera Bar under, under Sydney Opera House. And within five or 10 seconds of him turning up, he's that he mentioned. <laughs> he mentioned the grand final and the year after. And yeah, you, you killed my coaching career. Uh, so yeah, we had, a, we had a good beer talking about it. But no, we had a, Jewsby did a good job. We had a, a homecoming. So we had an open top bus back and a couple of thousand fans turned up to Jewsby Town Hall and we all got suited up. That was sort of the beginning of the end of it there, Jamie. You know, I know you're saying you sort of distraught that they didn't get promoted, but, you know, I think, I think some naivety there, probably on all our parts, that we felt we should have got promoted and we should have gone up. I think the reality of it was... Uh, the rugby league probably knew a little bit more than us that the club perhaps wasn't in the best state and being run the best way and uh, the alternatives that they came up with for playing away from um, from our lane weren't particularly solid ones um, so yeah well massively disappointing and, and it will be very much the beginning of the end really I think as a, as a young ambitious coach Neil had had his team at the top of the comp for three years and he was starting to get offered jobs and he, and he felt he couldn't fulfil his ambitions uh, by getting Jewsbury to Super League. He wasn't getting offered jobs in Super League, but he was getting offered other jobs in the championship of clubs that were more likely to get, you know, more likely to get promoted at, at that time. So, yeah, he, uh, he went and joined Widness and you know, pretty much followed him the day after, yeah. 
I've paid my own transfer fee. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, yeah, and there's some stuff come out. So when 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 you leave, the painter is the villain and all that. Um, and what what had happened was Neil left and sort of asked me to be assistant coach back then. And by the time I got into the club, we we'd had a very strong group for uh, for two or three years. And there's a point with Roy Sampson, and yeah, I get on great with Roy and Andy Fisher. And to be fair, they were both new to the club pretty much then. Um, and, you know, what? I had a meeting and they were going to change this and going to change that. I think we were second in the comp at the time and they were going to change everything. And straight away, I just had a, you know, just no disrespect to them, but I had a, a, you know, we were all feeling a little bit down about the whole situation and the atmosphere just wasn't the same. And uh, I just didn't see need for wholesale changes everywhere. Uh, and I just didn't get a real good feel for it. They owed me a fair bit of money. Um, and Neil rang me up literally the day after. He said, look, I've taken the witness job. Uh, do you want to come with me? Um, but I was still under contract. So they owed me. They used to pay you Dewsbury. They had a, have a car boot, didn't they, on a, on a Sunday morning. So they used to pay you in fivers from car boot. You'd get this big wrestler's neck of fivers, like used fivers, people getting in. And, the, and this is no word of a lie. It'd come out of a biscuit tin. That was what, yeah. That we're Jack? talking about after, yeah, Jack. Jack yeah, God rest, God, God rest his soul. You know, and I fell out with Jack at the time a little bit because of it. And in the end, the end, I just said, "Oh, look, you know, you owe me this. Just, just keep it. Just keep it and let me go." So, you know, they painted me as the me and Neil as the pantomime villains, and and the new people came and gave you know the place a bit of a lambasting. But I think to keep Jewsbury at the top of the comp for three years were a real, you know, real good effort on Neil's part, uh, to be honest. And, you know, all good things come to an end. Definitely, mate. And you mentioned coaching there, obviously. We'll just whiz through a bit. Obviously, I know you ended up at assistant coach at Featherstone, but your first full-time head head coach gig were at York in, in 2004. You only had one season there, mate. But second in the, in the table, playoff runners-up, National Cup semi-finalists. What, what, what do you remember about your time at York? Yeah, loved it, loved it. I uh, again, your dad. I think your dad were at Featherstone physio there um, when I was with Andy Kelly, and and that, you know, again, that were that were a, the, the glass were always half empty, and uh, I think they decided they weren't going to renew Andy Kelly's contract to the end of the year. And it was just real mixed messages. They, they sort of asked me to take over a couple of weeks before the end of the season, and I wouldn't. You know, I, I just nah, I'm not going to do that to Kel, and and. Then Steve Lingard, the chairman, at the end of the year, yeah, you know, we'd like you as his new coach. My dad was the CEO, so that put me off straight away. You know, even though it was my dad, I just absolutely didn't want to work under my dad. Um, and then the chairman, Glenn Robinson, came up to me, and, and Lingard had offered me the job. And he told a couple of players, Stu Dickens, Ian Tonks, look, we're getting Richards as his coach. But they'd never really done it in, in a proper way. And... Um, and then Glenn Robinson came up to me and sort of said, oh, you know, the job's going and put him for it if you want. Well, I'm thinking, well, your chairman's just offered me it. You know, he had talked to me last week and he's offered me it. And then you're not offering me, telling me to put him for it. And I, and I can remember being out, out with my ex-wife, actually, who have been somewhere shopping. I can remember just saying, I just wish my phone would ring. I just really don't want to stay, even though it was Featherstone. I just felt the the glass was half empty in everything that we're doing, and I just couldn't see anything other than 
a bit of a shit fight, to be honest. <laughs> you know, so it, it wasn't something that, you know, coaching your hometown club, first head coaching gig, but it, it wasn't something that I just really wanted to do. And I, I didn't think I could have heaps of success with it. And I think we all know as coaches that if your first job in, in a good one, sometimes you're not, you know, you don't get invited back. So, and, and it's literally, it's no word of lie. As soon as I said, I'd, I'd love my phone to ring. Um, it did. It, it rang literally within five minutes and, and it was Steve Ferris. And Steve Ferris had, had played for my dad at Carlisle. Uh, and he, he just said, look, I can remember ringing your house up when you were a kid to speak to your dad. Uh, if your dad went in, I'd always have 10 minutes on phone to you. You'd always be recommending players and say, have you seen this team play? And have you seen these doing that? And he and says, even from a young age, I, th I felt, you know, I'd, I'd listened to what you were saying, followed your career that Neil took you from Dewsbury to Widnes. Um, you know, I found that, you know, he found that interesting in terms of, you know, influence I could have on a team like that. Uh, he says, will you come and meet me? Uh, went to his house on the way home because I had to drive past where he lived. Sat in his front room and I thought he's going to ask me to play. He wants me to go as a player assistant coach to Paul Broadbent at York. Uh, so we got talking about it and he literally, within half an hour, said, look, do you want to come and coach York? Paul's having to finish uh, through work commitments. Um, didn't know too much about him, but, but I left his house uh, genuinely excited. I, I can remember that. I just left absolutely buzzing, thinking... You know, this is going to be great. And and this is another, you know, stroke of luck, really. Steve's had some jobs in Super League that haven't quite worked for him over the last couple of times. But he was a, just a truly wonderful bloke to work with. As a young coach, finding his way, you know, the way he went about recruiting his team. He were, he were very much a mentor to me in my early days. You know, he'd sit next to me on game day. You know, we'd be on the phone 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night. You know, he, he were terrific. Uh, he was a terrific salesman. He could really get people to come uh, and play and buy into the club, and and the atmosphere, the atmosphere that they've got now. You know, you look at York now, and everybody looks at York now, and don't they? And think, yeah, they're doing a great job. New stadium, good coach, teams overachieving. The atmosphere that Steve, Roger Dixon, John Guilford had created in the club there, um, it, it was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. I still love going back to York. Still keep in touch with quite a number of the players that that played for me. Uh, one of them, Craig Forsyth, is sailing around the world at the moment, raising money for Rob Burrows. Um, and I had, I had a, just a, a truly wonderful year, just saddened, really, that I think in the grand final, uh, it doesn't happen now. You know, it really doesn't happen now. You don't have to play a team in the competition above you, but we had to do that, you know, play Halifax, who'd got, you know, something like five times the salary cap and, and hand out, spend what we had. And yeah, we got we we conceded three three tries in the last nine minutes. As you can tell, I'm still not over that. And uh, and one of them, you know, one of them were a video rest call that were wrong. You know, he got the call wrong. So yeah, unfortunately, I thought we we're a little bit victims of our own success. Yeah, you know, Barry got up, won the league, and uh, Peter O did a terrific job with them. And but I look at our season. We we got to the semi-finals of the. Arriva trains, we got to the quarterfinals of the Challenge Cup. So along that way, we took like seven, eight, nine games more than anybody else in our league. And all them games were again higher ranking opposition. So so we, we had a phenomenal year really. And it was just unfortunate that uh, the last nine minutes of it, 
Um, you know, didn't quite work out, but they got a great coach in Mick Cook to take over for me, and and they nailed promotion by winning the league the year after. So it was a really good time in in York. Cause it were uh, you know the the time when the the club had gone bust and bankrupt and they'd, they'd restarted it back up again. We're getting terrific crowds. The people were excellent, and uh, yeah, it was a, a wonderful time. I mean, the fact that you had such a, a good season will probably be one of the main reasons that Hull came calling um, and you went to there yeah. obviously a long time there. Um, we'll just start off as the, the assistant coach for now. And obviously in 2004, you went there. How did that opportunity come about? And did you notice a, a, a different sort of like level going to that established Super League club? Yeah. Um, yeah, because then then I had to, you know, I, I'd got my, my son James had just been born too. And I mean, just being born, you know, you were literally a few months old. And I were in the dilemma that, you know, packing a job in and taking a two-year contract at Hull. I'd had a couple of other clubs, you know, I'd, I'd, the, the year at York had uh, done me a lot of good in terms of, um, you know, I won't tell you which clubs, but I had a couple of, I had a couple of really good opportunities to, to move into Super League. Uh, but to work with John, John Keir uh, as his number two and work with Andy Last. And uh, I decided that, yeah, you know, I'd I'd sort of throw my job in and uh, and and give it a whirl. Yeah, I'd I'd seen my dad turn down big jobs in the game. You know, I'd seen when when he won Wembley at Featherstone, and I think subsequently got Rochdale promoted. He he could have gone to two or three really, you know, two or three of the biggest clubs in the game at the time, and he'd always knocked it back to stay loyal to his club, which is really admirable. But I think you know, experience tells me that. The loyalty sometimes to the clubs, you know, there's always the haves and haves nots in rugby league. Um, sometimes you, you've got to know when you've done your job and it's time to move on and take another opportunity. That, that probably wasn't the case at York, but I were a, a position that, you know, my, my son were young. I were coming home, I were going to work, coming home, flying straight out to York. You know, on the phone with Steve Ferris till 10 and 11 on a night. I was cutting video till 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock in the morning. Um, I know I couldn't keep that up if I wanted to do it properly. So I, I sort of said, look, I'll give myself another year at York. Uh, and then unless I get the opportunity to move up, I'm going to come out of the game completely because it, it were impossible to be, a, you know, to work, be a, a father and, and spend so much time away from home. Like you know, like I did. So, uh, you know, for not a lot of reward too. You know, you didn't get paid really well back then. I, I was sort of working my way towards an opportunity. Uh, so yeah, I decided uh, again, much to my father's disgust. To be honest, he, he absolutely were like, "No, nah, don't pack your job in." Uh, but yeah, I did, and and fortunately, I did because I think oh five won the Challenge Cup. Oh six, I uh, went to the grand final. Uh, went to the grand final, I think. Oh six, and then then again. Oh eight or oh nine, I'm sure you boys know. I went to another Challenge Cup final again. So it were, so it were a, you know well, I think it always is at Hull a very up and down period. We had some you know initial success there. Got to work with some some great staff and and obviously some some wonderful players too and an experience, um, you know experience the you know the biggest days that the game's got to offer in this country really. Definitely, and um, we've just got to touch on that that Challenge Cup final because. It's probably yeah. the best Challenge Cup final that I've seen in my lifetime. It's one that really does yeah. stick out because it always brings up like the underdog story. No one, Hull were not fancied at all. And obviously, he went out there and performed, obviously, admirably. 
I always remember, obviously, John Kieran and, and Bruffin. It was just an excellent performance. And I was that day. And then going from that, obviously, the next season to, obviously, heartache in, in the grand final, losing to St. Helens. Um, what was it like yeah. that turnaround? Uh, it was the best day. It was the best day, really. You know, John John was pretty pretty awesome, really, in, in the build-up to that challenge. Court. You know, we put a massive focus on the on the cup rounds. Um we felt we felt we had a really good game plan going in again Leeds. We we spent a lot of time um we spent a lot of time looking at how we could negate uh negate their backfield work, Marcus Bay in particular. Came up with a bit of a kick plan and for three or four weeks before we'd be out on Ionians, we'd have the poles in the ground, just making Richard on hammer the ball in this area, a particular type of kick. Uh, and we wanted to kick from a particular percentage on the field. You know, if we if we're forty from his own line, if we're fifty from his own line, if we're sixty from his own line, we we really felt we could uh, bring Marcus by up, get Richie Mathers running around a lot at the back of the field, and, and get Richie. So it sounds really simple, really, but get Richie running towards the touchline. So when he caught the ball or he had to pick a rolling ball up, he had to stop turn and come back in field, give our chase time to get down there and, and take markers by out of, of the first few plays. You know, it was so important, uh, so important to them. Um, and, and Horney, you know, Horney and Cookie as well, put, put in our best kicking performance uh, probably of the season. And, and due reward, you know, he practiced, he practiced so hard and we were really, really confident in our game plan uh, going in. The game could have gone either way. You know, the game hinged on a on a last minute try uh, and, you know, ebbed and flowed and swung, but it, it was a pulsating game. Um, Barry Johnson, who used to play for Castleford, John had got Barry to come in and do a motivational talk for us. And I think, you know, that stirred a lot of the young guys up into a lot of belief. And, and we went in, Stephen Kearney, we, we had like a bit of a circle of truth the night before the game. Uh, the last person to talk was Stephen Kearney, who, who talked about, you know, he pretty much got a full plate in terms of his career. Um, and he wanted to do it for the young guys who'd not experienced it. Stephen, were a, you know, Richard Swain, a terrific leader. You know, Stephen wasn't going to be phased by anything that leads to him. And he actually talked about, you know, we'll get in the tunnel They've got a bit of swagger about them, Leeds, and and we get in the tunnel, and and sure enough, in the tunnel, I think there were a bit of bit of carry on from two or three of their players, and I think our boys were really prepared for that. They just kept their focus, looking down the tunnel, didn't get embroiled in any of the shit that were going on. Um, and it, it was a terrific game, and it could have gone either way. Could have absolutely gone either way, and you know, tremendous try uh, from Cookie. Uh, a couple of other things I remember. Obviously, John's got to walk the team out. And to get up to your box at um, Millennium Stadium, you have to get a lift and a chaperone takes you. But it takes you a few minutes. So as we've gone out of the changing rooms and national anthems and all this, the lift got stuck and we're like, shit, we're not going to get up there for kickoff. So, so we got up and I've flown into the box to get my headset on and didn't see the patio doors were closed and just smashed into these patio doors bang and obviously you know the camera's trained on your coach's box don't you and, and I'm dead set seeing stars nearly you know nearly knocked me out and first three or four minutes of game you know I would have had a head injury assessment had they had they done that um, but the other one was, of all the big games I've experienced that were the best the coach ride in you go through tens of thousands of fans the Leeds fans then the whole fans you get booed, you get cheered. The celebrations after, right in the city, the, the stadium, 
you know, the fans are right on top here at the stadium. The atmosphere uh, is is better than any other stadium I've experienced. And, and it, it not just because we won, it, it truly gave you everything that a cup final should be about. I think it helped that the game was so exhilarating. Um, but yeah, we're probably, you know, one of the, in terms of experience, you know, one of the best single game days you, you could ever want, really. Definitely. Um, just touching on as well about the, the grand final, how was that day in comparison? Obviously, it wasn't the result that you wanted, but how was that day in uh, comparison to obviously the Challenge Cup final day? Uh, I think Paul Cook's written about some of this in his book. So, so Peter Sharp had come in by, uh, for John Keir by then. You know, we'd had a torrid start to the year, somewhat surprising really that uh, you know John had, had been moved on and, and Sharpie coming. I, I'd ended up sort of caretaker coaching him for four or five games. We had a bit of a turnaround. I think we went on a 15 or 17 game winning streak. So we're second in the table by that stage. But I more remember the semi-final again, Bradford, because you're like, you've had a good year. Shit, we don't want to miss out at this last one. And we just felt, you know, me and Sharpie just felt we were just going over the backside of his best form. We won away at St. Helens, you know, by a point. I think Cookie dropped a goal in, in, in the last few minutes there. Um, and, and we were just we were just absolutely flying. But we just felt we'd, we'd probably played our best football maybe three or four weeks before. Um, so we beat Bradford at, at, at KC. And it, it was just a wonderful feeling of achievement to make the grand final. Um, you know, Saints are a tremendous team. They had internationals not in the team at that stage. You know, Kieran, Longy, we're all, Schoolfolk, we're all very much in the pomp at that time as well. Um, but it was probably a couple of days before the grand final, we uh, had a pay dispute. Um, I felt some of our players uh, carried on. Uh, I, I understood the point. The club should have had it all sorted long before it, it got to... A situation, but we had a, a little bit of a mutiny uh, a couple of days before the final. We just felt, you know, some of the players probably won't tell you this, but we felt we lost some momentum. We felt we needed all the momentum into the game that we could. And it, it was sort of tainted for us as a staff that, you know, a number of the players have been very, very vocal about uh, the state of play over bonuses and things like that. It, it shouldn't have got to that point. I think, I think longer term, the CEO paid a bit of a price for it. Uh, but at the same time, you know, we were on the verge of a grand final year after a challenge call. I felt, I felt we could have reined it in a little bit and and sort of tried to get it sorted out after rather than uh, having a mutiny before. So yeah, we had we had pretty mixed feelings around around that grand final. Fair enough. Um, after 2008, obviously you took the step up and become head coach of Hull FC then. Um, for three yeah. years, uh, challenge cup runners up to Saints and two playoff appearances. How yeah. would you uh, describe your your time there as, as the head coach as a whole? And what was it like going from an assistant to obviously a full-time head? Uh, was it a noticeable difference? Yeah. Was it a lot more pressure? Mixed bag because I've done three and a half years as assistant coach. You know, you, you build some really strong relationships. And you know, probably some players uh, struggle to separate that. You know, the relationship you have with an assistant coach to when you become a head coach. Uh, you know, Wembley, we, we had a really, really bad year and, and we, we set our sights on trying to get to Wembley. Um, but, but the bigger job really was the state of the roster. We'd had a good a good reserve grade team and a good under 
19s, whatever it was, academy back then. And, and we brought a lot of these kids through. But as, as, as Rob's roster ended up upside down, you know, Sharpie, Sharpie's relationship, you now Pete's one of my best mates in game and still is. Uh, and his relationship had sort of broken down with, with, I guess, the power brokers at the club. Uh, but some of our overseas signings perhaps didn't work out from an injury standpoint and, and balance of the team. Uh, and we ended up with a roster in a, in a terrible spot. So it probably took me a year to try and sort that out. But that by that point, you know, by that point, you know, the fans are into you. Because like I said at Hull, if you're not winning the comp uh, or you're not winning the challenge court, everything else is a bit of a disappointment for them. Uh, there's not a lot of middle ground and balance. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I'm probably a different coach to Warrow then. You know, as a young coach being assistant, you know, you're promoted into a job and then all of a sudden you're dealing with boards, you're dealing with media more, I'm dealing with a, a roster that's upside down, you're dealing with agents. So so my actually coaching time shrank. I don't think I was real smart with uh, the staff I put together. You know, I made some mistakes in that. Um, yeah, playoff spots, I think, I think the middle year we've finished six on points difference. We, we were a, we were a whisker going in the top four, and I, I thought that were a big turning point for my career there. Can you remember when Lee Radford had a fight with Ryan Bailey and got sent off? And and I think I think we lo- we lost to Leeds in the last five minutes with twelve men. I think had had we won that, we'd have been top four. We'd have got a second bite of the cherry in the playoffs. Um, but we went out, finished sixth. I reckon we fatigued and probably didn't handle his week well enough and all okay, knocked us out of the playoffs. And, you know, I always felt I were up against it as a coach then. We'd a poor start to the season after. Went went on a winning run. Um, and when the club, when the ownership changed, it were a pretty easy one. He, he wanted to change coaches. And, and t- to be fair, you know, I know my time would up and, and that was probably the right thing for the club at that time. I, I definitely learned my lessons. Uh, so while, yeah, we challenged cup final, a couple of playoff spots, you know, I, I think... There was some lessons I learned about the way I were going to go about it if I got another opportunity, which, you know, I'm fortunate enough to get one straight away, really. So next up, you decided to come back to the right side of Yorkshire and it's a beautiful place that is Wakefield for us boys. Yep. Firstly, how did you find it different? Obviously, at Wakefield, it's <laughs> always a tumultuous time. How did you find it different to being at Hull where success is ingrained, whereas at Wakefield it can be... Had to come by at times. Uh, right. I know you said we've got an hour, boys. How long we got here? You're all right for time, X. Like, some of the stories I've got at Wakefield, you probably won't believe them or, or the public won't believe them. So, look, I know, I know that, you know, probably no one wanted me as coach, but what, what I turned up and, and I found was uh, a club that were preparing to go in the championship. You know, they'd had that last minute reprieve because uh, um, the Celtic had fallen over. And what I'd found from from John leaving, you know, they'd had, they'd had a tough time the year before with rosters. I think, uh, you know, I looked down, I think they'd lost something like 50% of the games had conceded 40, 50 or points or more. And it was just a really shit time for them as a club. But by the time I got there, you know, the, the club had really, you know, I probably knew I was going for three or four weeks. I just got to, to sort of get sorted out with Hull, really, uh, which I did. Uh, you know, we, we all knew that we're going, but it takes time to sort of legally get through. So when I got there, they started signing players and you're like, what, you know, what are you doing this for? I, I, I sort of said they were down the track, 
with with one particular overseas player. And I'm like, now now we're going to need our overseas spots. First thing I'll do, I'll get on a plane, I'll go to Australia, but we're going to need spine players. You know, we're going to need a scrum half, we're going to need a hooker, we're going to need some strike in there. And and what I found out, I said, look, pull all the deals off the table. But they didn't. You know, one instance I'll give you, that in the player of the year that had a marquee uh, on the pitch and one player that, you know, I said, look, don't offer him a contract. It's not that I don't rate him as a player. It's just that, you know, I can get wingers. I can get wingers in England easy, cheap. Please don't go through with this deal. Pull it off the table. I'll ring the kid. I'll ring his agent. It's not personal. It's just we need these quota spots. And then I get a phone call a couple of weeks like, oh, yeah, we've had a bit of a problem. That signing's got through. And, you know, I've been in the game a long time. How can a signing get through when you've said it's off the table? So it's been me this story. Anyway, we managed to get out of the signing. And they've been signing players that really, with the best will in the world, we're all getting ready to go in the championship. So, um, again, cutting a long story short, I went to Australia, met up with Tim Smith. Uh, you know, we got Tim signed on a bargain deal. Uh, Sammy Ayoub rang me up, a, 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 you know, a prominent agent, and took me along and I went to meet Paul Ayton. I met Paulie two or three times in a week over there, and I can't even tell you the money we got him for. It were ridiculous how little money Paul came to play for Wakefield for. We got Dean Collis on a, on an absolute fraction of what what he was getting paid in the NRL, and all of a sudden, bit by bit, what we did, we went round and we we begged, steal, and borrowed. So you know, mothers were getting pumped um, at Cass by Basil. So Cass paid, you know, pretty much. 50%, 60% of Richie's wages. Uh, I think similar with Kermel at Wakefield. Uh, and gradually, bit by bit, uh, Benny Cocaine were down among the dead men. You know, he were nearly going to prison and, and couldn't get a club. Well, I'd known Benny from him being a being a baby, really. I lived next door but one to him when I lived in Normanton. So I knew Benny. So, I, I the, the you know, all the bad mail that comes with Benny, that, that didn't phase me. I knew I could sort of control him, if you like. Peter Fox got paid off by OKR. So we ended up with this team, um, I think with about 1.2 million to spend. And and we spent, we probably spent 100 grand of that paying people off to create more room because, you know, I'd not signed them. They'd signed a number of players that, you know, I didn't think were going to help us win too many games. Great kids, great players, but we needed to get enough players and enough attack um, to make sure we could score enough points to win some games. And, uh, you know, we put a reasonable, I thought we put a reasonable little team together. I loved it. I loved my time at Wakefield. Absolutely loved every minute of it, apart from, you know, the last year. You know, I talk, I talk, we, we made the playoffs that year, played some great for you. I know we won seven on the trot, but I think we won 11 of us last 14. So, so for half a season, you know, our form were, it were top four form. And, and you know, I thought we did some some really good stuff that year. Um, I could have left at the end of the year, but but hung in there. You know, I had another job offer to coach a, you know, I, I guess a perceived bigger club. Um, stayed, and then it was towards the end of the second year when it all started again. Uh, you know, the sharps bins in the physios room were getting emptied. The skips were full. Uh, we didn't have any balls with any grip on. Um, you know, so I was saying, look. <laughs> we've got no balls we're training without proper balls and they'd asked me to ring around and ring other clubs and try and I said what you want me to actually ring and ask them if they'll give us some balls or can we pay for them no you'll have to give them 
players weren't getting paid. So, so I think at the time we went on a bit of a winning run there and we were really close to the playoffs again. And there's nothing that will turn a rugby league club upside down more than players not getting paid. It turns a joint upside down. When they're Australians and the families here and English guys and they've got mortgages to pay, I can remember two or three occasions during this run where we're like, you know, trying to keep them together to make the playoffs again. It turned the joint upside down and, and it became, you know, he'd walk in one day, you know, he was sold Cowwood to Huddersfield. You'd walk in another day and, 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 and obviously there was a change in the guard in the ownership of the club. And to be fair to Michael, Michael were always really straight. He were like, look, we've got to tell, sell Tim Smith today or I can't pay the wages and we're going under. So, so the, the choice was go bankrupt let all the creditors down, all the players are free agents, the club will probably get relegated, or work the way through this, pay everybody back, spend less money on your team. And I just, I'd had, I'd had two years, loved every minute of it. And towards the back end of the year, that, that were like, you know, it was starting to get a very, very difficult situation. I think everything we'd worked for, team spirit, putting together a team that were capable of winning, I think everybody had had the finishing bottom, hadn't they? Everybody for a couple of years, oh, Wakefield will finish bottom. You know, we were never really in and around that. We were always either in the playoffs or, or a little bit closer to them that second year. Uh, but I can remember the third year, I'd built the team. You know, they'd let me put the team together. And I think that stopped happening. So I had no real say on who were going out of the club. And I started to have less say on who were coming into the club. And I know in the off-season, I really contemplated sort of quitting then. I spoke to Tony Smith, who was a you know was a real good mate of mine, um, and Tony said, "Look, you know you can you can handle a tough year, can't you?" And I, and I thought I could, uh, but I can remember going to Wakefield away. You can remember Paul Sykes scored a try right on the bell, and everybody were jubilant, and we won a couple of games on the trot, and it, and it was just really hollow on me. Uh, and I felt that that team, I felt the club couldn't allow us to compete. Michael would admit that. Michael would say, "Look." It doesn't matter if we get relegated. It would do his best. But fans don't want to hear that, do they? You know, fans, you know, your team loses. It's the coach's fault. So, you know, fair play to Michael. is like, you you know, you're under no pressure. You, you can only do what you can do. Uh, if we get relegated, you get relegated. But we're aiming to keep the club afloat and we're aiming to, you know, pay all his creditors back, which is a really noble way of going about it when you can wind the club up. Uh so it was at that time, really, where I felt, you know, these blokes need someone that's got a bit more emotional investment. It, it, it sort of knocked the wind out of my sails as a coach. And I don't think I was being true to myself or true to the club, really, that I'd, I'd lost that, you know, I'd lost that little bit of spark myself. Uh, and I felt, if anything, they need, they need someone that is really up for this and really up for the challenge. And, and long and short of it, after two years, uh, you know, going through the trials and tribulations of what coaching Wakefield can sometimes bring to you, uh, it just just probably warmed me down a bit. I got divorced uh, and that, you know, I got divorced. I'm going through all the, um, you know, all the stuff you do about finances and kids through all that. And it was just a time where it had warmed me down enough and I just I just weren't feeling enough passion towards the club or the players. And, and I felt I'd lost some of the bits I were good at, which were, you know, putting the team together and... and I just felt it was absolutely the right thing to do to sort of go in and say, look, I need to stand stand away from this. Uh, I'll stay until you find another coach, but you know, when you get looking, getting looking for another coach, and they were really good about it too. Uh, so you know, I started to get some stick off fans, and that that didn't really bother me because 
as I say, they don't know what you're being dealt with in the background, which I thought were a, an almost impossible situation. And, and, and you know, Webbo did really good, but it, it did culminate the year after in, in a million pound game, didn't it? Which it were always going to head. They're always going to be very, very difficult to start avoiding situations like that. On a more personal and positive note, you got appointed the head coach of France during 2013, I believe. How, how did that come about? What way? Just to, when did that come? Uh, you speak French. Well, I did it at school, and so so we went and had lessons again. So yeah, I'm not don't try and lure me into it now, boys. There's no chance of that. Um, yeah, so I went. We went. We got a school teacher to, to give us some lessons, so I could get by now. Didn't expect me to do review and preview in French, but the fact that when you had a glass of wine with them, I went for a beer with them, and we would try with the players. Then they love the fact that we're having a go. Really, really love the fact that we're having a go on the training field. You know, I could go. You know, you know, get me to thirty. You know, start at the thirty, get me into the fifty. Come in, boys. Let's go, boys. You know, stop wait there. Try line defence. I could get away with some terminology there, but most of the boys could speak English. Uh, Jerome Gise were a terrific sort of interpreter as well, so so it never it never really became an issue. But you do lose a bit in communication as a as a head coach. You absolutely lose something really vital in communication. I think that's why Trent Robinson, apart from being a wonderful coach, he had more success than anybody's ever had because you know he's, he's fluent in the language too. Uh, but Trent Trent basically uh, recommended me for the job. I think they'd got one or two names. Uh, it's, it's very political in France. So every time there's a change of president, there's a change of coach. And every time there's, there's a change of president up for election, there's a big coup and an overthrow and they get rid of him. That's the political nature of France. And it happens in clubs too. Uh, they're very emotional, passionate people, but the wonderful people too. Uh, great rugby league area, uh, tremendous hosts. And the World Cup were a great experience. So, uh, you know, they're not qualified for the quarterfinals too much. So we, we managed to... Uh, managed to get to the quarterfinals. I think what had happened was Trent had, I think they'd had a couple of names. Trent had said, uh, you know, why don't you why don't you go try Richard? I flew down to Gatwick Airport. I met Carlos Saluendo from Toulouse, uh, the guy with the tremendous tash. Um, he interviewed me um, and we went from there, really. So I were only going to do it for the World Cup. In hindsight, that would have been a good thing to do. We made the quarterfinals. We had a, a, a and again, a, a a really good bunch of boys and a tremendous spirit in there. Um, elders gloves up for periods, played New Zealand, which, you know, too much firepowers. Uh, Samoa, we just didn't have enough cutting edge. I think Anthony Milford caught with two or three big plays and and we lost against Samoa, who were jam-packed with talent, to be fair. Uh, but we held his gloves up and, and had, you know, some real spirited performances. Uh, but after that, it, it was difficult. Yeah, it was really difficult. It was it run. It run like an amateur organisation, to be fair. Uh, Catalans didn't really want the players on block, on mass, playing for the national team at the end of the year, understandably so, because they get hit harder than any club in the comp. Um, there were, you know, the, the rumblings at presidential level and falling out with the Catalan people, they'd started to. So, yeah, it became, it became a really difficult slog in the end. Uh, but again, met some good people and um, you know, I had some good times and World Cup were a great experience. Superb stuff, mate. Just just obviously going on, you ended up at Warrington for a couple of years over to the actually St. George Illawarra Dragons as well in kind of a, I think it was a player pathway type 
type role, mate. You came out to see me, didn't you? You'd have come out there. You come to my house, didn't you? Yeah, well, funnily enough, me and Jed at the time were travelling Australia, so I, I popped over with my dad just to come visit you, yeah. That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so tell us quickly about that role, mate, because I remember being quite interested in that at the time. How did you end up with that? Um, yeah, I've I've loved Australia. So, so I followed the tour around in 1992. Me and my brother went and we, we went to all the, you know, all the club games and the test matches and had a wonderful time. And, and you know, I guess like you guys, you, you grow up watching ARL and the NRL and, um, you know, having those players through over the years, through my dad's team, I'd always had a, you know, a fascination, a love for Australia. And my first visit there really you know, lit a fire up in me. Fortunate enough to go back with work a number of times when I've been recruiting and I've been into clubs, you know, I spent time at, uh, at Parramatta with Brian, I spent time at, at Melbourne uh, with Craig Bellamy and, and Stephen Kearney, Michael Maguire when they were there uh, and and been to the Roosters as well. So so over the years, coached a lot of Aussies, got good friends over there uh, and it was just a bit of an ambition really and, and when Ian Millward were in at St George, I know Paul McGregor a little bit and, you know, if an agent sends a list over with English players, you know, you get the phone call, as you do from a number of people that, you you know, you you build relationships with over the years. You know, is this player any good? Is that player any good? What would it cost to get a back rower? You know, what do you think of him? And I sort of built a bit of a relationship up. And they just, they just rang me and said, look, if we got a job here, would you fancy coming working here? Out of the blue like that. Um, and when I coached Wayfield, actually, I forgot about this. When I coached Wayfield in that World Cup, I did get a couple of chances to go and coach there and it was right at the time where I was sort of getting divorced and, and, and leaving my kids. I nearly took one job as an assistant. Uh, yeah, I'll tell you, it took to Paul Green. And um, I, nearly, I nearly went up to Townsville with Paul Green, who I'd met and got to know over the years. And that, that just didn't quite work out at the time. Um, and when St. George said, look, if we, if we can get a job, if any jobs come up in his organisation, do you want to have a look at it? Uh, I said, yeah, I didn't know what job it would be, whether it'd be coaching or, or whatever. And then they sort of created a job. So it, it were recruiting. We were also heading up high performance. So I basically looked after things outside of first grade. Um, you know, So if the coaches were interstate with first grade, I'd take reserve grade for training. I'd help coach the 20s with Wayne Collins, who I'd played with at Dewsbury. The junior reps, they've got merged teams. They've still got St. George and Illawarra. So I oversaw the 18s and 16s and, and sort of did some coach education, run an high performance camp for the, the absolute elite players. And, and a lot of those guys are coming into first grade now. I only had a year with them, but, you know, like uh, Jason Saab signed for Manly, uh, the Fee Guy boys, uh, Jaden Sullivan's played first grade out there at, at the minute. Junior Moan's just been put into first grade. Uh, Cody Ramsey uh, that you've probably seen playing the nines last year. So, so I, you know, I, I coached those guys during junior reps and we run a high performance program for them. Uh, oversaw the coaches, did some recruitment around all grades, really. Uh, as you saw where I lived and where the club was, it was best job in the world, really. Absolute best job in the world and loved every minute of it. And, uh, you know, some, some personal circumstances um, the combination of personal circumstances cut my stay short, really. You know, we'd gone for three years. Um, but everything, sort of towards the end of the first year, everything happened at once. You know, my, my partner's dad, um, we ended up passing away with COVID recently, but he, he sort of had the last rights in and around October. Um, you know, my little girl was struggling. One of Cass' girls struggled in high school a little bit. 
and then I got offered a, a job at Leeds. So so everything just sort of happened in, in the space of two or three weeks. And in the end, we just said, look, for, for family reasons, really, you know, I've had 30 years of being very selfish about my role within the sport and, and I had to sort of I had to sort of give one back to the family. But but again, the opportunity um, to join in a long-term role at Leeds were, were a bit of a catalyst for it too. And last but not least, mate, you've just touched upon it. Obviously, post kind of Sinfield, Maguire, Burrow, Peacock era, it was always going to be tough at Leeds, but how yeah. are you finding it, mate? Oh, it's, it's a terrific club. Uh, the circumstances in which I ended up in the job uh, you really difficult ones. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I openly said I didn't really want to go on the coaching stuff. I, I really love my job. I working with Rob Burrows and Mark Buttrell and Simon Bell, and and really enjoying that. It was a very similar role to the one I had at, at St George. Um, and Jimmy Lowe's left, and and you know, team was struggling. Dave, you know, I was sort of Johnny on the spot really, and Dave Fern is a you know champion bloke. Uh, and he said, you know, will you help us out? Uh, I said, well, I'll do it to give you some, give them time to find, you know, rather than making a rash appointment, uh, I'll, I'll give you a bit of time to find someone else or if it works out and you want to keep me, but let's just play it by ear and, and see how we go. And to be honest, the first few weeks weren't too bad, really. And then there were a couple of poor performances in there. Uh, but yeah, I had shock of my life. I really had the shock of my life. Kevin Sinfield rang me one Sunday afternoon and played Salford away. And, uh, you know, he said, oh, I guess you know why I'm ringing. And I had absolutely no idea. And he said, uh, you know, we've relieved Dave of his duties. But I had to sort of put phone down and say, Kevin, I'm going to have to ring you back here. I was that taken aback by it all. Um, you know, but clearly there'd, there'd been issues in different relationships. And Kevin had, you know, absolutely put it all on the line and said, look, I think we need to make a change. Um, so, yeah, a very, very difficult situation with two blokes who I liked and respected that, that their relationship had, 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 you know, clearly wasn't working. And and the club had, had sort of, um, you know, were, were backing Kevin all the way, really. So, um, if you remember at the time, it were horrendous. You know, they lost a couple of games and then I took over before the Bradford game. Um, I said to Kev, what, what we're going to do if, you know, will, will you look after it for a while? And I said, what we're going to do if I say no? You know, Chev Walker in there, really young and experienced coach. And it was such a difficult situation that I think to put Chev in there would have been very, very hard on a young coach. Um, so I said, look, I'll, you know, I'll do it until, uh, until, until you work something out. It, it was so sudden, you know, I don't think the plan were ever to, um, you know, to, to change from Dave, but it happened so suddenly that we're left in that position that I was probably the only experienced coach in, in the club, really. So, yeah, took over, got beat by Bradford away in the cup. <laughs> I suppose I can laugh at it now. I shouldn't laugh at it. If this is going out live to people, only because we won the Challenge Cup this year, I think I can sort of look back and and, and laugh. But, but I, I actually wasn't that phased by that. While it was a very, very dark day in the club's history, um, that was where it were at. You know, that was where it were all at, and it were almost a catalyst to start, I guess, to start rebuilding it. And uh, towards the end of the year, Kevin said, "Oh, do you want do you want to do the job full time?" And and I felt it was important that that we didn't fall over the line in terms of relegation. We needed to 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 get through that period, and I sort of needed to know for my own ends that we could keep this team playing in a good spirited way. We knew to to make 
you know, to take the club forward, we had to make personnel changes to the team. But I sort of, on my own ends, needed to know that we could keep the team going and playing well and spirited. And Kevin needed to do that too, you know, to appoint me seven, eight weeks out. And then all of a sudden, the team nosedives and the fall over the line in relegation. And I look a poor appointment for Kevin. And, you know, Kevin couldn't afford a, an appointment that, that wasn't really going to work out this time. Uh, but we got to a position, I think Kevin went and spoke to a couple of other coaches. We got to a position two or three weeks to go where I said, yeah, come on, we feel, we feel we're heading in the right direction here. And with the right recruitment, we can, you know, we can definitely move, you know, move the club forward. You know, let's get, let's get a bit of an investment in youth again and, and start, you know, not having as big a squad, but promoting from within and, and let's build, you know, let's build something that, that touch wood hopefully can, you know, can last over seasons, whether I'm coach or not. Excellent stuff, mate. I mean, I could listen and talk to you all day. I know, I know from past experience, you're a bit of a rugby league encyclopedia, mate, and you love the game as much as, as anybody I've ever met. But a huge pleasure and a huge honour for you to come on the podcast. And thank you so much, mate, for doing that for us. Sorry for rivering over his time, boys. I realise sometimes, you know, I talk too much. Oh, there's no uh, such thing as talking too much when it's about rugby league, mate. But th thank you so much for coming on. And, and I would say best of luck this season, but as long as you don't do wait, wait for it over too much, then I don't mind. Uh, are you both way? Are you all Wakefield fans, are you too? All three of us. Oh, well, good luck. Listen, you're a club close to my heart. He's a good mate of mine. He's a coach and and members of the coaching staff and stuff. So, you know, they're a club that I'll I'll always look out for. I always have really fond memories and and, and really want them to do well. You know, the, uh, there's a there's a real indomitable spirit about Wakefield, you know, and and that'll never sort of change whoever the coach or the custodians of the club is uh, and I think that that really comes from the fans you know you said it yourself sometimes they're, you, they, they're used to the ups and downs I think supporting Wakefield you get used to running with a rough and the smooth a little bit but I do think it you know it does foster a really um, sort of unbreakable spirit at times within within that club definitely mate and uh, I couldn't agree more and thank you once again for so much for coming on mate uh, Richard Agar everybody thank you very much no worries.